running for your life. Help! Help! I said, just go! On this Selected Shorts, we'll have you listening at the edge of your seat. Stay with us. I'm your host, Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I can't live without stories. If you're listening, you're at least a little bit like me, and I relish the chance to bring these stories to you. Life has its risks. Some people seek them out by jumping out of airplanes or eating sushi from the gas station. Others just take calculated risks when necessary during an inpatient operation or a need to drive through Boston at rush hour. Risks are everywhere, really. I mean, you can break your neck in the bathtub. Now, I personally am not a risk taker. At those little carnivals that popped up for a weekend in the parking lot of the mall when I was growing up, my friends would go on some terrifying ride called The Screamer, where you hung upside down, screaming. But I'd be down below on, you know, the Peter Cottontail ride, turning in a slow, boring circle. I wasn't afraid of dying on the terrifying ride. If you must know, I was actually afraid that my shirt would fall down and that other kids would say, did you hear the news? Meg Wallitzer was topless on The Screamer. Pass it on. But danger, danger is something else altogether. It looms over us. It threatens us and our loved ones. And the high stakes of dangerous situations often reveal more about character than simple risks ever could. On this Selected Shorts, we push past everyday risk into the realm of true danger. We'll hear two stories in which characters are pushed to extremes. In one, an escaped prisoner dons another man's life. In the other, a widow flees a fire but can't escape the burdens of family. Rebecca Mackay's The Briefcase is a story from our archives, and it's as compelling today as when we first aired it. Mackay is the author of the novels The Great Believers, The Hundred-Year House, and The Borrower, as well as the short story collection Music for Wartime. Mackay likes peering into dark places. The Briefcase reads like a story by the Russian master Gogol, both highly political and surreal. In it, a prisoner on a chain gang escapes into another man's life. Victor Garber expertly scores the emotional ups and downs of this piece. He's an accomplished performer of works like Tom Stoppard's Arcadia, but also starred in Alias. More recently, he starred in the legal drama Family Law. Here he is reading Rebecca Mackay's The Briefcase. The Briefcase. He thought, how strange that a political prisoner marched through town in a line, chained to the man behind and chained to the man ahead, should take comfort in the fact that this had all happened before. He thought of other chains of men on other islands of the earth, and he thought, how since there have been men, there have been prisoners. He thought of mankind as a line of miserable monkeys chained at the wrist, dragging each other back into the ground. In the early morning of December 1st, the sun was finally warming them all enough to walk faster. With his left hand, he adjusted the loop of steel that cuffed his right hand to the line of doomed men. His hand was starved, his wrist was thin, his body was cold. The cuff slipped off. In one beat of the heart, he looked back to the man behind him and forward to the man limping ahead and knew that neither saw his naked red wrist. Each saw only his own mother weeping in the kitchen, 
his own love lying on a bed in white sheets and sunlight. He walked in step with them to the end of the block. Before the war, this man had been a chef, and his one crime was feeding the people who sat at his tables in small clouds of smoke and talked politics. He served them the wine that fueled their underground newspaper, their aborted revolution. And after the night his restaurant disappeared in fire, he had run and hidden and gone without food. He who had roasted ducks until the meat jumped from the bone. He who had evaporated three bottles of wine into one pot of cream soup. He who had peeled the skin from small pumpkins with a twist of his hand. And here was his hand, twisted free of the chain, and here he was running and crawling until he was through a doorway. It was a building of empty classrooms, part of the university he had never attended. He watched from the bottom corner of a second-story window as the young soldiers stopped the line, counted 199 men, shouted to each other, shouted at the men in the panicked voices of children who barely filled the shoulders of their uniforms. One soldier, a bigger one, a louder one, stopped a man walking by, a man in a suit with a briefcase, a beard, some sort of professor. The soldiers stripped him of his coat, his shirt, his leather case, cuffed him to the chain. They marched again. And as soon as they were passed, no, not that soon, many minutes later, when he had had the stomach, the chef ran down to the street and collected the man's briefcase, coat, and shirt. In the alley, the chef sat against a wall and buttoned the professor's shirt over his own ribs. When he opened the briefcase, papers flew out, a thousand doves flailing against the walls of the alley. The chef ran after them all, stopped them with his feet and arms, herded them back into the case. Pages of numbers of arrows and notes and hand-drawn star maps. Here were business cards, a professor of physics. Envelopes showed his name and address, information that might have been useful in some other lifetime, one where the chef could ring the bell of this man's house and explain to his wife about empty chains, empty wrists, empty classrooms. Here were graded papers, a fall syllabus, the typed draft of an exam, the question at the end, a good one. Using modern astronomical data, construct to the best of your ability a proof that the sun revolves around the earth. The chef knew nothing of physics. He understood chemistry only insofar as it related to the baking time of bread at various elevations or the evaporation rate of alcohol. His knowledge of biology was limited to the deboning of chickens and the behavior of Saccharomyces cerevisiae, common bread yeast. And what did he know at all of moving bodies and gravity? He knew this. He had moved from his line of men, creating a vacuum, one that had sucked the good professor in to fill the void. The chef sat on his bed in the Widow Kay's basement and felt in the cool leather of the briefcase a second vacuum. Here was a vacated life. Here were salary receipts, travel records, train tickets, a small address book, and these belonged to a man whose name was not blackened like his own, a man whose life was not hunted. If he wanted to live through the next year, the chef would have to learn this life and fill it. And oddly, this felt not like a robbery, but an apology, a way to put the world back in balance. The professor would not die because he himself would become the professor and he would live. 
Surely he could not teach at the university. Surely he could not slip into the man's bed unnoticed. But what was in this leather case, it seemed, had been left for him to use. These addresses of friends, this card of identification, this riddle about the inversion of the universe. Five cities east, he now gave his name as the professor's and grew out his beard so it would match the photograph on the card he now carried in his pocket. They did not anymore look entirely dissimilar. To the first man in the address book, the chef had written a typed letter. I'm in trouble and have fled the city. Tell my dear wife I am safe, but for her safety do not tell her where I am. If you are able to help a poor old man, send money to the following post box. I hope to remain your friend, Professor T. He had to write this about the wife. How could he ask these men for money if she held a funeral? And what of it if she kept her happiness another few months, another year? The next 26 letters were similar in nature, and money arrived now in brown envelopes and white ones. The bills came wrapped in notes. Was his life in danger? Did he have his health? And with the money, he paid another widow for another basement, and he bought weak cigarettes. He sat on cafe chairs and drew pictures of the universe, showed stars and planets looping each other in light. He felt, perhaps, that if he used the other papers in the briefcase, he must also make use of this question. Or perhaps he felt that if he could answer it, he could put the universe back together. Or perhaps it was something to do with his empty days. He wrote in his small notebook, The light of my cigarette is a fire like the sun. From where I sit, all the universe is equidistant from my cigarette. Ergo, my cigarette is the center of the universe. My cigarette is on Earth. Ergo, the Earth is the center of the universe. If all heavenly bodies move, they must therefore move in relation to the Earth and in relation to my cigarette. His hand ached. These words were the most he had written since school, which had ended for him at age 16. He had been a smart boy, even talented in languages and mathematics, but his mother knew these were no way to make a living. He was not blessed like the professor with years of scholarship and quiet offices and leather books. He was blessed instead with chicken stocks and herbs and sherry. Thirty years had passed since his last day of school, and his hand was accustomed now to wooden spoon, mandolin, peeling knife, rolling pin. Today, his hands smelled of ink, when for thirty years they had smelled of leeks. They were the hands of the professor, ergo, he was now the professor. He had written to friends A through L, and now he saved the rest and wrote instead to students. Here in the briefcase's outermost pocket were class rosters from the past two years. Letters addressed to those young men care of the university were sure to reach them. The amounts they sent were smaller, the notes that accompanied them more inquisitive. What exactly had transpired? Could they come to the city and meet him? The post box, of course, was in a different city than the one where he stayed. He arrived at the post office just before closing and came only once every two or three weeks. He always looked through the window first to check that the lobby was empty. If it was not, he would leave and come again another day. Surely, one of these days, a friend of the professor would be waiting there for him. He prepared a story that he was the honored professor's assistant, that he could not reveal the man's location, but would certainly pass on your kindest regards, sir. 
If the earth moved, all it would take for a man to travel its distance would be a strong balloon. Rise 20 feet above and wait for the earth to turn under you, you would be home again in a day. But this was not true. And a man could not escape his spot on the earth, but to run along the surface. Ergo, the earth was still. Ergo, the sun was the moving body of the two. No, he did not believe it. He wanted only to know who this professor was, this man who would, instead of teaching his students the laws of the universe, ask them to prove as true what was false. On the wall of the cafe, plate-sized canvas, delicate oils of an apple half peeled, signed below by a girl he had known in school. The price was more than three weeks of groceries, and so he did not buy it. But for weeks, he read his news under the apple and drank his coffee. Staining his fingers in cheap black ink were the signal fires of the world, the distress sirens, the dispatches from the trenches and hospitals and abattoirs of the war. But here, on the wall, a sign from another world. He had known this girl as well as any other, had spoken with her every day, but had not made love to her, had gone to her home one winter holiday, but knew nothing of her life since then. And here, a clue, perfect and round and unfathomable, after all this time, Apple. After he finished the news, he worked at the proof and saw in the coil of green-edged skin some model of spiraling, of expansion. The stars were at one time part of the earth until the hand of God peeled them away, leaving us in the dark. They do not revolve around us. They escape in widening circles. The Milky Way is the edge of this peel. After eight months in the new city, the chef stopped buying his newspapers on the street by the cafe and began instead to read the year-old news the widow gave him for his fires. Here, 14 months ago, Minister P of the Interior predicts war. One day, he found that in a box near the widow's furnace were papers three, four, five years old. Pages were missing, edges eaten. He took his fragments of yellowed paper to the cafe and read the beginnings and ends of opinions and letters. He read reports from what used to be his country's borders. When he had finished the last paper of the box, he began to read the widow's history books. The Americas before Columbus, the oceans before the British, the Romans before the fall. History was safer than the news because there was no question of how it would end. He took a lover in the city and told her he was a professor of physics. He showed her the stars in the sky and explained that they circled the earth along with the sun. That's not true at all, she said. You tease me because you think I'm a silly girl. No, he said and touched her neck. You are the only one who might understand. The universe has been folded inside out. A full year had passed and he paid the widow in coins, he wrote to friends M through Z, I have been in hiding for a year, he wrote. Tell my dear wife I have my health. May time and history forgive us all. A year had passed, but so had many years passed for many men. And after all, what was a year if the earth did not circle the sun? The earth does not circle the sun, he wrote. Ergo, the years do not pass. The earth, being stationary, does not erase the past nor escape towards the future. Rather, the years pile on like blankets existing at once. 
The year is 1848. The year is 1789. The year is 1956. If the Earth hangs still in space, does it spin? If the Earth were to spin, the space I occupy will therefore vacate in an instant. This city will leave its spot, and the city to the west will usurp its place. Ergo, this city is all cities at all times. This is Kabul, this is Dresden, this is Johannesburg. I run by standing still. At the post office, he collects his envelopes of money. He has learned from the notes of concerned colleagues and students and friends that the professor suffered from infections of the inner ear that often threw his balance. He has learned of the professor's wife, A, whose father died the year they married. He has learned that he has a young son. Rather, the professor has a son. At each visit to the post office, he fears he will forget the combination. It is an old lock and complicated. F1, clockwise to B3, back to A6, forward again to J3. He must shake the little latch before it opens. More than forgetting, Perhaps what he fears is that he will be denied access, that the little box will one day recognize him behind his thick and convincing beard, will decide he has no right of entry. One night, asleep with his head on his lover's leg, he dreams that a letter has arrived from the professor himself. They freed me at the end of the march, it says, and I crawled my way home. My hands are bloody, and my knees are worn through, and I want my briefcase back. In his dream, the chef takes the case and runs west. If the professor takes it back, there will be no name left for the chef, no place on the earth. The moment his fingers leave the leather loop of the handle, he will fall off the planet. He sits in a wooden chair on the lawn behind the widow's house. Inside, he hears her washing dishes. In exchange for the room, he cooks all her meals. It is March, and the cold makes the hairs rise from his arms, but the sun warms the arm beneath them. He thinks the tragedy of a moving sun is that it leaves us each day. Hence the Aztec sacrifices, the ancient rites of the eclipse. If the sun so willingly leaves us each morning, it returns is a stay of execution, an undeserved gift. Whereas if it is we who turn, how can we so flagrantly leave behind that which has warmed us and given us light? If we are moving, then each turn is a turn away, each revolution a revolt. The money comes less often, and even his old friends who used to write monthly now send only rare apologetic notes, a few small bills. Things are more difficult now, their letters say. No one understood when he first ran away, but now it is clear. After they finished with the artists, the journalists, the fighters, they came for the professors. How wise he was to leave when he did. Some letters came back unopened with a black stamp. Life is harder here, too. Half the shops are closed. His lover has left him. The little cafe is filled with soldiers. One afternoon, he enters the post office two minutes before closing. The lobby is empty, but for the postman and his broom. The mailbox is empty as well, and he turns to leave, but hears the voice of the postman behind him. You are the good Professor T, no? 
I have something for you in the back. Yes, he says, I am the professor. And it feels as if this is true. And he will have no guilt over the professor's signature when the box is brought out. He's even wearing the professor's shirt as loose again over his hungry ribs as it was the day he slipped it on in the alley. From behind the counter, the postman brings no box, but a woman in a long gray dress, a white handkerchief in her fingers. She moves towards him, looks at his hands and his shoes and his face. Forgive me for coming, she says. And the postman pulls the cover down over his window and disappears. She says, no one would tell me anything, only that my husband had his health. And then a student gave me the number of the box and the name of the city. He begins to say, you are the widow. But why would he say this? What proof is there that the professor is dead? Only that it must be, that it follows logically. She says, I don't understand what has happened. He begins to say, I am the good professor's assistant, madam. But then what next? She would ask questions he had no way to answer. I don't understand, she says again. All he can say is, this is his shirt. He holds out an arm so she can see the gaping sleeve. She says, what have you done with him? She has a calm voice and wet brown eyes. He feels he has seen her before in the streets of the old city. Perhaps he served her a meal, a bottle of wine, perhaps in another lifetime. She was the center of his universe. This is his beard, he says. She begins to cry into the handkerchief. She says, then he is dead. He sees now from the quiet of her voice that she must have known this long ago. She has only come here to confirm. He feels the floor of the post office move beneath him, and he tries to turn his eyes from her to ground his gaze in something solid, post box, ceiling tile, window. He finds he cannot turn away. She is a force of gravity in her long gray dress. No, he says, no, 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 no. I am right here. No. He does not believe it, but he knows that if he had time, he could prove it. And he must, because he is the only piece of the professor left alive. The woman does not see how she is murdering her husband right here in the post office lobby. He whispers to her, let me go home with you. I'll be a father to your son, and I'll warm your bed, and I'll keep you safe. He wraps his hands around her small, cold wrists, but she pulls loose. She might be the most beautiful woman he has ever seen. As if from far away, he hears her call to the postmaster to send for the police. His head is light, and he feels he might float away from the post office forever. It is an act of will not to fly off, to hold tight to the earth and wait. If the police aren't too busy to come, he feels confident he can prove to them that he is the professor. He has the papers, after all, and in the havoc of war, what else will they have time to look for? She is backing away from him on steady feet, and he feels it like a peeling off of skin. 
If not the police, perhaps he'll convince a city judge. The witnesses who would denounce him are mostly gone or killed, and the others would fear to come before the law. If the city judge will not listen, he can prove it to the high court. One day, he might try to convince the professor's own child. He feels certain that somewhere down the line, someone will believe him. Victor Garber read Rebecca Mackay's The Briefcase. I'm Meg Wallitzer. This is such a powerful study of what constitutes identity. What starts out as a desperate masquerade becomes a transformation, so in the end, the man is fleeing his old life, his old self. When we return, running from paradise. You're listening to selected shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back to Selected Shorts. I'm Meg Wallitzer. And if you too want to be part of our show, then please check out the Selected Shorts writing contest. Every year, one of your favorite writers chooses a lucky winner, and the prizes are, I am in no way biased, amazing. $1,000, publication on electric literature, an actor performing your story at the closing night of Selected Shorts, and a free writing class with Gotham Writers Workshop. This year's judge is Anthony Doerr, author of Cloud Cuckoo Land, All the Light We Cannot See, and more. Visit SelectedShorts.org to learn more and submit by March 10, 2023, for your chance to win. On this show, we're listening to stories about risk, danger, and flight from danger. And because writers love twists, you can be pretty sure that a story called Paradise is going to be anything but... The story delivers a gripping combination of a mother's flight from a raging fire and from a life in which she has always been fighting for survival. Author Ixta Maya Murray is a writer and legal scholar. Her art criticism, journalism, and short fiction have been featured in Art Forum, The Georgia Review, and Plowshares. Paradise was selected for the Best American Short Stories 2021 by guest editor Jasmine Ward. In it, Murray has crafted a beautiful combination of personal narrative and hair-raising action. Our reader is Tanis Peranto, best known for her television work on Gossip Girl, Billions, and Full Frontal with Samantha Bee. Here's Ixta Maya Murray's Paradise. Paradise. I think we should go, Dad, I said, shielding my eyes from the wind. The sheriff had tweeted an evacuation order for Polga 20 minutes before. It was quarter to eight in the morning and the sky didn't look right. 10 minutes ago, it had turned from bright blue to a thick, pale, orangey gray. I'm not going anywhere, said Wesley, my father-in-law. He looked eastward with his face crinkling up. 
He was a big bull of a man, about 5'11". He was white and bald and wore glasses. He had a chipped front tooth and his son's blue eyes. He wore a cowboy's t-shirt and blue nylon shorts and black flip-flops, 80 years old. That sky, though, I said. I'm 5'2", with a big ass and strong arms. I'm 44. My black hair frizzed all around my head. I wore black nylon shorts and a pink nylon top and no shoes. We stood in the front yard of the house, which was on Edgewood Lane. Wes's black Yukon sat in the driveway. I parked my little green Prius by the curb. The winds whipped down the road. The crepe myrtle bushes I planted on the sides of the house right after Mike died flattened and splayed from the hard gusts. The cottonwoods fringing the road shook like a huge hand was slapping them. Dead gold grass and dried leaves crawled along our front yard instead of a proper lawn. Back inside, Jessie dawdled, drinking her milk in the kitchen and playing with Henrietta. Shelly, I said. Our neighbor, a hefty, yellow-haired woman, had just walked fast out of her house wearing flowered shorts and a white t-shirt. Fernanda, they're evacuating Polga, she said. Polga's little town may be 15 miles away from paradise as the crow flies. I know, I said. You got Jessie? Shelly asked. Yeah, I think we're going to go in like 10 minutes, I said. Wesley shook his head. Wes, Shelly grimaced. Sunny boy, smell that air. Already it smelled like burning. Fire's here every year, Wesley said. 10 or 12 other neighbors came hurrying out of their houses. Martin, Tilly, Babs, Fred, Nancy, I can't remember. Already Serena Hammer's Honda and Joe Tate's Chevrolet chugged down Edgewood toward Pearson and Skyway. Evacuation for paradise, Martin suddenly hollered from two houses down. He's another white man, but they're all white except for me on this street, so why keep saying it? His nose practically touched his iPhone screen. They're telling us to haul out. I looked at Wesley. He sniffed. I'm not running, he said. I built this house in 1982. Wes, I said, look at the color of that goddamn sky. This is my house. You just live here, he said. You and Jesse can go. He started walking toward the myrtles on the left side of the house where the hose was. I ran inside. Wes didn't want his son, Mike, to marry me. It wasn't a secret. I'm homo and Mexican and grew up in the Evergreen Mobile home park with my parents, Lupita and Ben. Mike and I knew each other from around. We'd seen each other at Paradise High where we graduated in 84 and then later at Butte Community. But Mike had been raised up on Edgewood. When he was young, he dated girls like valedictorian Renee Henson and cheerleader Willa Miller, whose parents live on Pence and Mountain View. I stuck to a crew of native black and Mexican kids who played video games and got sent to detention when they shrugged at the white teachers. Mike was a blockhead back then anyway, and I wasn't interested. He played football, and I'd seen him soaking wet and drunk at house parties on Saturday nights. Mike was above me because my parents worked as janitors at Paradise's Best Western and Chico's Oxford Suites. But his pa, Wesley Noonan, was one of the best lawyers in town. Wes set up a three-man outfit, Noonan, Gump, and Penzer, up on Skyway, where he did estate planning for folks from Paradise to Chico. Wes was a big man, and not just physically. When he'd walk into Taddy's Cafe, where I bust and then waitress during high school, diners would look up at him in an eager manner. Taddy herself, she's now dead, 
would run up to him, wiping her hands on her apron and seating him, his pretty red-haired wife, Laura, and Mike, right away. Ah, the steak and a scotch, Wes would say to me on nights when I took his order. He looked me over once, then never again. Would you like that rare, sir? I'd ask him, though I knew. He'd sit there and sniff like he was mad that the scotch wasn't in front of him already. He likes it well, Laura said, smiling. Mike would gawk at me a little bit and then blush and look down. The 20th time I pretended to forget that Wes liked his meat scorched, he set his jaw and smacked a water glass so that it went flying. How many times do I have to tell you the same thing? He snapped while the water dripped. Dad, Mike had said. Laura had begun to mop up the spill with her napkin. What's my name? I asked him. Wes's face twisted. What? What's my name? I asked again. I pointed to my name tag, Fernanda. Come on, I've been getting you steak for a year. You must know it by now. I just didn't like the way he did business. Daddy came running over, wailing. We've got this covered. The bill for tonight's taking care of, Wesley. To do penance, Taddy made me keep bringing the table complimentary olives and fried cheese bites that came out of my check. But even though I fed that mope to the gills, I still got fired later that night. Mike and I started dating eight years ago. I'd gotten a divorce and come back home from Dublin, Georgia, where my first husband, Scott, lived. Mike hadn't gone to law school like his father wanted, but instead became a police officer. He did canine patrol first with a German shepherd named Logan and then with Henrietta. He was married for seven years and then divorced Willa in 99. He rented a little red house with Logan on Megalia Street and kept it as tidy as a tea kettle. I lived back in the mobile home park in Evergreen where my parents had raised me. So we were still in two different worlds. But once I returned from Dublin, I joined a Facebook page, Life in Paradise CA, and I guess he saw me on it. We messaged back and forth about the good old days in PHS as if we'd known each other better than we had. After a while, he asked me out. I always had a crush on you, he said on our fourth date. Do you remember that night at Taddy's with your dad? Yes, he said and cracked up. Hot diggity, I thought, watch out. I'll bet he was mad, I said. Mike had green eyes with long lashes. He nudged up onto me and I felt the sweet heat coming off his mouth and his face. He's always mad, he said. The reason why I know that Wes didn't want Mike to marry me was because on our wedding day, he sat in the front pew just shaking his head. I didn't care. I was the happiest I'd ever been. Mike and I had our baby, Jesse, a year and a half later. The first German shepherd, Logan, died, but then we got smart as a wizard, Henrietta. We four lived like queens and a prince in that ugly little red house. Laura would come over Sundays to see the baby, but Wes kept to himself, except on Jesse's birthday and on the holidays. The second Thanksgiving we were married, Laura hosted the meal. I worried that Jesse would totter around screaming and break something, but when Laura kissed her all over and Wes started laughing at her antics, I let myself relax a little bit. After the main course, but before dessert, Mike took my hand and led me through the house's hallway and down a short flight of steps. He brought me to Wes's bonus room slash basement, which was lined in knotty pine wood and carpeted with dark brown fluff. The pirate's cave, 
Mike said, snuggling his face in my neck. Here, Wes kept a collection of Chinese vases wrapped in bubble plastic and framed jerseys from the Cowboys and the 49ers. On a shelf, Wes had stored a big bronze General Custer in more of that bubble plastic. In another cabinet, I saw fancy autographed baseballs, a stuffed boar, and in the corner, he'd lumped some white supremacy survivalist hooey like expensive bottled water and boxes of freeze-dried chicken strips. Also on the west side of the room, there was a big wall safe, which was all steel and had a Mission Impossible code box. What's in here? I whispered. Oh, a fuck ton of euros and dollars and gold bars like for the end of days or I don't know what, Mike said, wrinkling his nose at the contraption. One of these days, I'm gonna break into this damn safe and then take you to Bermuda. We started making out like a pair of wolves while in the dining room, Laura clattered the silverware and yelled out, pie. Mike never did take me to Bermuda. He died in 16, heart attack. Laura had passed the year before from cancer. At Mike's funeral, Wes didn't hug me or pat my hand and I wouldn't have wanted him to anyway. We sat there next to each other, stiff, while the police department marched up and down the aisles offering me condolences. Wes didn't say anything then, but apparently he was already thinking about bailing us out. It was pretty plain that I'd go broke without the policeman's paycheck, but with Mike's miniature pension and my having to take care of Jesse. A week after the service, Wes sent me an email. You two can live in the back room if you want. Wes had more money for Jesse and me than my parents would ever have been able to scrape up. So I brought Jess and Henrietta to live with Wes at his ancestral manor. Right away, I started doing all the cleaning and cooking and gardening. At night, I'd hold Jesse and try not to scream into my pillow over the loss of Mike. The baby's a keeper, but I know what you are, Wes said the day we arrived. He marched me down to the bonus room and showed me the bubble-wrapped extra vases and the bronze fucking custer. He gestured at the wall safe. I ever see you trying to get into this thing, you're out. He took the time to point the finger at me, and I wasn't carrying Jesse in my arms, but if he gestured at my kid like that, I would have smacked him until his lip split. I didn't burn any calories on him insulting me, though. Mike's death had changed the girl who had once taunted Wes about knowing her name. I knew I had to eat the grits he gave me. I nodded and said, I get it. His face shifted a little then because he saw I wasn't interested in his junk. Now, I don't mean any ill feelings about it, understand? He said, it's okay, I said, just feeling like kicking that man until he grunted. You're all right. Still, Wes stopped being quite such a shit by the time the fire came. He adored Jesse, who'd just turned six. Every once in a while, he'd even thank me for my chicken dinners and also my vegetarian experiments with the increased fiber. And last year, on my birthday, he took me to a new French restaurant that some Oregonians set up in the venue that used to be Taddy's. Wes had sat with me in a corner booth, silent and awkward, while I ate a steak and felt weird. I left Wes fiddling with the hose in the front yard and bolted into the kitchen. Jessie sat at the breakfast nook, finishing her milk and petting Henrietta with her feet. 
As soon as I came in, Henrietta sat up stiff and staring, but my daughter did not even notice the color of the sky because she's always daisying about like a princess petunia. Mom, Henrietta won't drink my milk, she yelled at me. Jessie's a gorgeous little creature with bronze skin and long legs. She has sleek black hair and incomprehensible green eyes that must mean I have some white in me. Honey, just sit there, don't move, I said. Henrietta jumped up and padded over, standing next to me and looking around and breathing with her mouth open. We had a little white plastic television on the counter. I searched frantically for the remote and found it by the coffee pot. When Henrietta pawed me, I grabbed it and started pressing. I flipped past bright, screamy cartoons to a black newscaster wearing a blue suit and red lipstick. The lady looked as serious as the Pope while jabbering something. The screen suddenly split to show a white woman with a pert upturned nose who wore a big black jacket and had her brown hair flipping around her head from the wind. The white woman looked to be standing on traffic jammed Skyway, which is the main road through paradise and cuts all the way to Chico. The sky on the screen was a darkening bronze and when I looked out the window, I saw that it was that color here too. Bobby, I think there's an alert out for your region now the black lady said. The white lady with the wind-whipped hair nodded. There's an evacuation alert for the community of Paradise and there's already traffic on the road. So we recommend, from behind the white lady, I could see a bloom of gold and red suddenly shooting up through the brassy sky. Oh, said somebody off screen, maybe a cameraman. What, the white lady said. I snapped off the television. Henrietta and I ran from the kitchen to the hall and then to my bedroom, which I shared with Jessie. I lunged toward our green bureau and opened the drawers. From the top drawer, I grabbed her clothes, and from the bottom one, I snatched mine, but all just randomly. I had jeans and nightgowns lumped in my arms, and did I need sneakers? I dropped the clothes and ran to the closet and tore the door open and found my kivas there. I put them on. I grabbed Jessie's little Mary Janes and put them in my shirt, in my sports bra. Then I ran out of the room. Henrietta came flying out after me. With the dog whining at my heels, I dashed down the hallway again, making my way across the living room and then another hallway and then to a little carpeted stairway that went down to a basement. The big safe gleamed from the west wall, all steel and with its nuclear code box where I just probably had to type in Laura to get to Wes's treasure. Beneath the safe, next to the bubble-wrapped custard, there were three big boxes of arrowhead water and some cartons of chicken strips. I had no idea what to take but water seemed like a good idea. I could pour it on Jesse if there was fire. I lifted one of the water boxes up using my back and hurting it and then jostled with it up the stairs. I almost tripped over Henrietta, but somehow stayed on my feet. I ran through the kitchen with my load as fast as I could and then out to the front yard. Wes sprayed Henrietta and me as soon as I hit the lawn. He had turned on the hose full force and thumbed the nozzle so that it jetted out with a big white fan of water and the wind sent it shooting crazily everywhere. I took the blast in the face and kept going. Help, help, I said. Just go, Wes said. This is my house and Laura's. I'm not leaving it to burn. I blinked. My eyes were watering even without the help of the hose. The sky had turned a bright, bright gold. I could smell smoke thick smoke like acid. Everybody on the street was racing around and loading their cars. You could lose everything, Wes, I said. 
Tell me the code for the safe, and if I can, I'll get your stuff and we'll pack it out of here, I said. He looked at me funny. I don't think so. Okay, I said. He could have called me Pocahontas right then and started dancing around in a clan hat, and I would not have given a single tiny shit. I went into the house and snatched up Jessie from the kitchen table, gripping her in both arms so that one of her shoes fell out of my bra. I ran back with her and Henrietta out to the front yard. I think it might have been 8.45 by that time, maybe 9 or even 9.15. I could hear sirens. I could see towers of smoke from far off. I looked at the cars fleeing down Edgewood. Wes remained standing on the soaking lawn with a tsunami of water pouring out of his hose into the myrtles, the cottonwoods, the dry grass, the house windows, the whole facade. Jessie had her face in my neck and started screaming. I looked at the Prius, and then I looked at the black Yukon shining in the driveway. If fire swept over the car, we'd have a better chance of barreling through in that monstrosity than in my flimsy eco-compact. I ran back to the house with Jessie bouncing up and down on my shoulder. I saw Wes's Yukon keys on their thick plastic keychain in a little red dish. I rushed out the front door and clicked the Yukon open. I tossed Jessie into the beige leather back seat and Henrietta jumped in after her. Then I ran back to Wesley. Dude, listen, I said. Wesley's face was folded up like a wallet. He stayed on the lawn pouring water on the house where he'd lived with his wife and seemed like he was ready to die there. Wes, I said. Oh, God, he said. Wes, Jesse and I need you in our lives to protect us and be with us as a family. Insanely saying any hokum that I thought he'd listen to, you have to come with us. We can't make it without you. He turned and looked at me with real, tender, human eyes, maybe for the first time. Okay, he said. Okay, I said. I was already running to the Yukon. I'm driving, he said, dropping the hose. You're an old man, I yelled, and you have to protect the baby from the fire with your body. Okay, he said. We got into the car, slammed the doors. We left the arrowhead water on the curb. Jesse began screaming again. I screeched onto the street and pushed the gas, so we zipped toward the end of Edgewood, where we'd turn the corner into Pearson. There was a traffic jam right at the stop sign. Pearson was one long clog of cars. Our Yukon idled four back from the intersection. I recognized Martin's brown Dodge in front of me and Nancy's gray something. I don't know, a four-door? Somebody else I couldn't make out had taken the front of the line ahead of Nancy. Big fluffy pieces of ash fell down from the sky like snowflakes. I had to turn on the wipers just to push the crud off the windshield. No problem, I said in a calm, normal voice, like I was at Starbucks and they'd accidentally put oak milk in my frappuccino. <laughs> Just need this to clear and then we'll be off. In the back seat, Wes held on to Jessie, who sobbed herself hoarse. He kissed her many times on the cheek. You're a very good baby, he said. I'm not a baby, Jessie cried. She didn't know what was going on. Henrietta sat quivering next to Wes. The dog began to nudge her way up past Wes and Jessie, then slid up in the space between my seat and the Yukon's big console where you keep your big gulps in its handy holes. She slipped through and lumbered into the front seat next to me. Then she just sat there looking out of the windshield like a person. 
I reached out and petted Henrietta on the nose and flashed on Mike. He used to roll around with Logan and Henrietta, and the pups had opened up their mouths soft and pretended to bite him while he laughed. Yup, 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 I said, rolling up all the automatic windows because the smoke and ash came flowing in. We're going to be okay. We're going to be good. We're going to be fine. We sat there. We sat there. The cars didn't move. We sat there. More ash flakes fell. I don't know how much time passed. The sky began to change again. Black smoke started to stream into the gold sky like the design on a Chinese vase. Come on, come on, I said. Move your ass, I could hear a man screaming. I don't know from where. The car at the intersection moved onto Pearson. Maybe 10 minutes passed, maybe more. A full, thick stream of cars waiting behind me. Ahead of me, Nancy switched on her turn signal, which flickered at me like a sign from another normal world. Do you think it'll all burn down? Wes asked. Yes, I said. My safe's fireproof, but I don't know to what degree, he said. All I care about's that child you're holding on to now, I said. Maybe 10, 12, 20, I don't know how many more minutes crawled by. I'm never going to make back what I lose, Wes said. I'm too old. Insurance will cover you, and then Trump will make you a rich man with one of those disaster packages, I rattled on. The sky was really starting to darken, and I could see a thick haze of smoke coming in fast on a current. Nancy moved on to Pearson. I inched the Yukon to the stoplight. I turned on my turn signal like she had because we had all become robots. That asshole will leave us stranded, Wes said. He'll piss on some more hookers and burn it all on golf. <laughs> I started laughing. Tears were streaming down my face. You liked him, I thought. Only on Mexicans and Puerto Ricans, Wes said. Right, I laughed some more. Not you, Wes said. I don't care, it's okay, I said. Because if we get out of this alive, I'm gonna punch you till you sneeze teeth, you old son of a bitch. <laughs> okay, Wes said. I turned my head over my shoulder to look at my daughter tucking her nose into Wes's armpit. But everything's good, right, Jesse? Everything's good? Next to me, Henrietta's jaws were working strange like she was nibbling something. I saw froth on her lips. Everything's good, Jessie said. She clung to Grandpa but had stopped crying, I think. Here we go, I said. I got an open spot and moved on to Pearson. Pearson was filled with traffic. We sat there like on Edgewood, watching the known sky disappear. The wind whipped through the world. The pine trees standing tall above us thrashed and tottered against heavens that quickly crowded in with orange pewter clouds. We still had to move from Pearson, past the elementary school, past the Gold Nugget Museum, past the park, and on to Skyway. From Skyway, we'd flee southeast to Chico, about 40 minutes out. We barely moved, just little bits, while it got hotter in the car. The sky got swallowed by busy blackness. The earth burned fast. The people used both lanes, of course. I didn't like to see people in the lane to our left. Women and men bent over their wheels, mumbling to themselves, kids scrambling in the back seats. At one point, I saw Shelley in her Dodge Caravan, which was strange because I thought she had been long gone. She saw me and we smiled at each other, our faces both shuddering. 
We looked away from each other. We looked toward the road ahead, which got worse as the minutes ticked away. Don't let her look out the window, I said to Wes. At both sides of the road, the landscape turned into what looked, I swear to holy Jesus, like molten lava. Black brown clouds streamed down through a bloody sky and onto a swell of hills that had fried deep black and were streaked through with flame. It was getting furnace hot in the car. It was close, like you couldn't inhale right. Wes put his t-shirt over Jesse's mouth and said, breathe, baby, breathe. No, 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 no. Jesse started screaming. Henrietta started moving back and forth on the seat as if she wanted to pace, but there wasn't enough room. No, 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 no. My daughter shrieked. You're all right, you're all right, I yelled. Here you go, oh, my sweet sugar, Wes crooned. Oh, my sweet sugar. Crack, crack. What was that, I asked. Maybe some tires going, exploding, Wes said. I don't think they're ours, I said. I had no idea. Maybe they were. We moved up Pearson, slow, slow. We got onto Skyway. The whole universe had turned into a place of red sky and pine trees swaying like demons dancing. Through the hot, hot windshield, the heat blew off the dashboard in waves and threw itself off the side windows. We could see walls of flames tearing up from Tacos El Paraiso and Bill's Auto Repair. We crossed Vista Way and saw that Noonan Gump and Penzer had long orange rockets of fire shooting up from its roof and out its windows. Wes turned his head to look at his old office burning. Then he looked forward again. Jesse went quiet. Henrietta crouched down and did not move. We were all of us silent, but breathing like animals. I'm sorry about the safe, Wes said. He started crying. Just make sure my kid doesn't get dead, you old buzzard, I said. Of course it's all for you. You're my dear son's wife, he sobbed while clutching my daughter. Everything I have is for you and Jesse. The money, the gold, the stocks, the car, the house. I kept my eyes on the road ahead. A wave of red-gold flame and sparks curled across the sky and earth ahead of us. Any minute now, it'll be clearing, I told myself. Any minute, we can get away. Far off, I did see the sky brighten briefly and then go dark again. It brightened once more, then darkened out. Dark, then darker. Then bright once more, then dark. It's going to be good, don't worry, don't scare her, I said, my whole mouth like sandpaper. Tell me you forgive me, he wept. I watched the hellfire sweep across the trees to our right and kept my foot steady on the gas. Tell me, he said. I forgive you, you custer-loving bastard, I lied. I could hear the howling, eating sound of the fire. On the horizon, that tiny, pale, clear spot opened in the sky again and flickered. The red underworld rose up to heaven, exploded in the pines, and whirled above us like naked stars. The pale spot of clear sky continued glimmering ahead, though, and I aimed for it 
without praying and filled with something less like faith than a blind keeping on. And what I hoped was not my last thought was, what a native woman's got to put up with in this goddamn life doesn't stop until the minute that she dies. Tennis Peranto performed Paradise by Ixta Maya Murray. What makes the story so powerful is that the physical danger is just the frame. The story is really about what constitutes a family and whether something new can be created out of the mess of the old. I'm Meg Wallitzer. Thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the NYC COVID-19 Response and Impact Fund in the New York Community Trust, the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Consolidated Edison Company of New York, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, the Lemberg Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. Selected Shorts is also made possible by the National Endowment for the Arts and with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producers, circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space. Symphony Space.